Paul writes to the Ephesians to tell them very simply that God chose you to be part of the church so as to praise him. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part nine of Blessing God for Every Spiritual Blessing from Pastor Paul Twiss. After doing a detailed verse-by-verse preaching of Ephesians chapter one, verses three through 14, Pastor Paul will now zoom out to give us the big picture on these verses. Pastor Paul begins by explaining the historical context for the book of Ephesians found in Acts chapter 19 and 20 and its importance to the understanding the entire letter. During a three-year period, the church in Ephesus was blessed to have the daily in-person teaching from the Apostle Paul. Unfortunately, upon his departure, the Ephesian church began to experience pressure from outside. Pastor Paul contends that the Apostle Paul wrote the Ephesian letter in response to the pressure from the outside so that they would find certainty in the gospel in which they had placed their trust. So here now is part nine of Blessing God for Every Spiritual Blessing, and we pick up with Pastor Paul explaining the benefits of reading larger units of biblical text. There are different types of reading, different ways to read a text, There is a type of reading that is entirely valid and appropriate, which in effect takes a microscope and zooms in on perhaps a verse, perhaps a word within a verse. There's a type of reading that is particularly valuable when it concerns the Bible, which is a reading that zooms in and considers words in relation to other words and views perhaps just one or two verses at a time. And it may be that in the morning when you open up your Bible and commune with the Lord, that's the kind of reading that you're pursuing. This morning I read just two verses, and I met with the Lord through those verses, through the truths that he revealed to me. That is a good way to read the biblical text. There's another kind of reading that is also valuable, entirely valid and appropriate, even as we think about the Bible. And that is the kind of reading that puts the microscope to one side to step back and try to view the bigger picture, to take in more than a verse or two verses or even three or four verses, but to sit down and to say something like, this morning I met with the Lord by setting aside an hour and reading through the entirety of Mark's gospel. That's a good way to approach the biblical text. I would encourage you in these evenings as we work through Ephesians, perhaps make it a continuous practice at times to time to sit down and read the entire letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians in one sitting. There is that zoomed in kind of reading and the zoomed out kind of reading. And one thing I'll often say to folks as they ask me about how best to study the Bible is if possible, try to practice both. Try to be in the practice of both kinds of reading 
because both will have their own merits. Each will show you different things in the text. Over the last few weeks, we have been zoomed in very much looking at one or two thoughts at a time. One or two doctrines at the most every Sunday evening. And I trust and pray that as we've done that, you have gained a clearer apprehension of the contours of this long eulogy at the beginning of the letter to the Ephesians. Paul packs it full of theological truth, and we have tried as best we can to see those truths and hopefully to see them as they relate to one another. This evening, I want to step back. The microscope is being put to one side. And if possible, to try and put our arms around the whole thought. This is one sentence in the original language. One sentence. The second longest sentence in all of the New Testament is here from verses 3 through 14. Grammatically, the fact that it is one sentence suggests to us that Paul is trying to communicate one thought. In addition to giving us all of these rich theological doctrines which are true of us in Christ, each in their own, in their own value can be ministered to the Christian and be edifying. In addition to that reality, at the same time it would seem to be that Paul is trying to communicate one single message to the Ephesians through this opening passage. And my hope tonight is that we might grasp hold of what is that singular message. Hopefully we'll see some things that maybe we haven't seen thus far. Hopefully I can draw your attention to what are some of the salient themes that permeate all the way through this eulogy. In addition to all of the doctrines that we have considered over the last few weeks, I want to, if possible this evening, open your eyes to what are the predominant themes that guide Paul's thinking in this opening text. My thesis statement, I'll give it to you up front and then we'll spend the evening unpacking it. Paul writes to the Ephesians to tell them very simply that God chose you to be part of the church so as to praise him. That's my overarching summary of these opening verses. If I could condense Paul's thinking, his message in verses 3 through 14 into one sentence, it would be God chose you to be part of the church so as to praise him. I want to spend the first part of the evening thinking about why that might be his burden. Why would Paul be concerned to communicate that truth? And then to spend the rest of the evening thinking through what that means. And hopefully to show you from the text why Paul says that, how he says it, what the implications are for us here this evening. So why would Paul open his letter to the Ephesians 
with a message that says God chose you to be part of the church so as to praise him. Why would he choose to open the letter like that? Context is key. And here we're just going back a few weeks to our time in the book of Acts when we hopefully set the stage for this whole letter. You'll remember Paul had a relatively long ministry with the Ephesians, longer than any other church that he was able to spend time with. Around about three years, Paul was with the Ephesian Christians. And it wasn't just duration of time, but just the amount of teaching that he was able to give them that was significant. In Acts chapter 19, we read of Paul teaching the church in Ephesus in the upper hall of Tyrannus for, it would seem, many hours every day. They had this condensed teaching from Paul in three years, many hours every day, where he would just keep giving them the riches of the gospel, of salvation, of sin, of God's glory, of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, of the doctrine of the church, of the doctrine of the end times, you name it, seemingly Paul taught them it. So they were very well built up. Around about the same time, some problems began to arise. Not within the church, but outside of the church. The primary theological backdrop for the letter to the Ephesians is the Artemis cult. The Artemis temple is there in Ephesus. And perhaps thousands would be going to worship the goddess Artemis every day. And what was happening, as we read in Acts chapter 19, is that Many were turning away from that toward the church. The gospel was doing its thing. The Christians were not being obnoxious. They weren't seeking for trouble. They weren't stirring up strife within the city. The gospel was just doing its thing. And we read in the book of Acts, these men who preached the gospel, what did they do? They turned the world upside down. Not through anything of their own doing, but simply by teaching that Jesus is the way of salvation. So the gospel was having its effect in Ephesus, and so people are leaving the Artemis cult and going to the upper hall. As that happens, a number of businessmen are getting bothered. We read about Demetrius the silversmith. These businessmen around the Artemis temple who are selling trinkets. Their business is very much dependent upon people coming to worship Artemis. Their business, their way of life is dependent upon people not doing something else. And so as more and more are joining the church, they are losing their business. And so Demetrius kicks up a a fuss. And we read in the book of Acts of a riot in Ephesus because of this. In Acts chapter 20, the apostle Paul is told by the Holy Spirit to move on. And it's one of the saddest chapters in the book of Acts because it's a tearful, tearful goodbye. They don't want him to go and and he feels bound by the Holy Spirit to go. And so they part ways and now the church in Ephesus is left without their shepherd. There's no reason to think that the difficulties that they had begun to experience in Ephesus died down after Paul's departure. There is no reason to think that the difficulties they had begun to experience 
as their faith was, was coming into contact with the Artemis cult, died down after Paul left. If anything, most likely it kept increasing. But now they don't have their leader with them. Paul's this brave apostle and he steps forth and he's able to defend the gospel and defend them, but now he's not there. So the Ephesians have to stand up and give a reason for their faith. Paul writes to them some time after. As you read through Ephesians, there is no indication that there are any problems within the church. Some other letters in the New Testament, it's plain for all to see that the apostle is writing because there's a division within the church. That's not the case with Ephesians, at least not at the time Paul is writing to them. But quite possibly he finds cause to write because of the issues they're experiencing outside of the church. You might even say it like this, perhaps the Ephesians are beginning to experience an identity crisis. The pressure is coming from outside and they are starting to wonder about their faith and their fidelity to the gospel. And Paul writes to shore them up in who they are. He writes a letter to them so that they would be certain of the gospel in which they have placed their lives, staked their faith. He says, this is who you are in Christ and your understanding of your identity is the means by which you might stand when it's most needed. You see, it's no accident that the letter to the Ephesians finishes with Paul saying, put on the armor of God. Paul understands that the battle is close, that things aren't as peaceful as once they were when he was amongst them. And so he says to them in his, in his closing paragraphs, put on the armor of God. Be ready because you don't want to fail in that day when your faith is tested. You need to be ready to be who you are. And in a sense, the whole letter to the Ephesians is Paul simply reminding them of what they already know to be true concerning their identity in Christ. The opening eulogy is the theology of the letter in miniature. The theology of the whole letter gets packed into these opening verses. We get a theological summary of everything that is to come in these opening verses. And so even here, Paul is reminding the Ephesians of who they are in order that they would have confidence to stand for Christ in the day of testing. That is why Paul might say what he does in these opening verses. That is why he writes the things that he does to them. Now concerning what he writes, God chose you to be part of the church so as to praise him. Let's think about those in, in turn and try to understand how each constituent part of that sentence gives them confidence to live the Christian life. Beginning with that first part, God chose you. Look with me at verse 
For even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself. Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Verse 11, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So you see, we focused on it perhaps most in the first few verses when the doctrine of election was most clearly in view. But tonight I want to stress that God's will is a theme that permeates all the way through this passage. It doesn't get left behind after the first few verses, but actually Paul brings it up over and over and over again so that the Ephesians know first and foremost that God chose them. Or, to say it another way, Paul wants the Ephesian Christians to know that they are the objects of God's will. They are the objects of God's will. God has exercised his will toward the Ephesians, and they are but the recipients. What is the will of God? Well, Paul teaches them that the will of God is holy. It is loving, and it is grace-fueled to say just three things about his will. Paul teaches them that his will is holy, it is loving, and it is grace-fueled. And what he wants the Ephesians to consider, consistently have in their minds, is that their place in Ephesus, even in the midst of trouble, is a product of, an outworking of, the result of God's holy, loving, and gracious will. They are not where they are by their own doing. They don't happen to go to worship in the church because they chose to, but because God chose them. They are not called to a holy life because they decided that was a good idea, but because they were chosen by a holy God. They are not commended to love their brothers and sisters and to turn the other cheek when they are maligned because they think that's a good idea, but because they are the outworking, the product, the result of God's holy, loving, gracious will. They are not to exercise the same grace toward their enemies that they themselves had received in the gospel from God Because they see the reasonableness of such behavior. But they're to do such things because they are the objects of God's will. Now how would it be that instilling that single idea into the Ephesians theology should give them confidence? How would it be that as Paul instills in them the reality of God's will guiding everything, that that would shore them up in their identity? I'll give you an example and then we'll go back to the text. As I was thinking through this just this week, I was reminded of my very last appointment within the military that happened to be a very confrontational job. I was in it for only one year. I was within the submarine service, 
and it was my turn for an office job. So I'd been going to sea for some years, lots of tearful goodbyes, and at the end of that appointment, it was finally my job, my turn to be given an office job. You don't have to go to sea anymore, you get to come home every night. So we were excited about this, and then I found out the details of the particular desk job that I would have, and it was, in essence, to be something akin to a a safety inspector on the site where a company was building our submarines. So we pay them billions of dollars, pounds, and they build for us our submarines, and I'm the lone naval officer on this site inspecting their work. And my particular area, my particular remit, was to look at the nuclear work on site and to ask the question, 30 years from now, will what you're doing today result in a safe nuclear reactor? So the stakes are high. Every day I'm looking at their work and saying, 30 years from now, will what you're doing give us a safe nuclear reactor on board our submarines? And I'm a 20-something junior officer in the Navy, and I quickly learned that this job was going to be very confrontational. The reason being is because the company that we're paying to make these submarines for us want to make the most money, in the shortest time with the little amount of labor. And of course, in their mind, everything passes the test. And the reality of my job was every single day I would be in meetings uh, full of people that were telling me it's fine. I would be in boardrooms full of men many, many years older than me with much more experience than me. And my job was to say, I'm not happy with this work. I learned an awful lot that year about what confrontation should look like. I learned how to disagree. I learned how to say no. As I would drive in in the morning and I think through in my head the meetings that I had lined up for that day, I had a fair idea of just how confrontational some of those meetings would be. And again, I just I felt My youth, I felt just the inexperience that I was bringing to the table, and yet I knew my job. And so I had to figure out a way to stand my ground in those meetings to do a good job and not to fail the Navy and and my boss. And what I would do is simply think upon the fact that I'm going into these meetings with nothing to do with me, but everything to do with the person that I'm representing. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Today, Pastor Paul explained how God's will permeates Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. The Apostle Paul reminded the Ephesians in these verses of who they are, that they might have confidence to live the Christian life. Do we live the Christian life simply because we see the reasonableness of doing so? If so, what happens when we face trouble and pressure from outside sources, something we may see happening soon? Just as the Apostle Paul taught the Ephesian Christians that they were to live the Christian life because they were the objects of God's will, chosen to be holy, so too, believers today must know who they are in Christ to have confidence in the day of trouble. Praise God, believers are the objects of His will. 
Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. To learn more about this ministry, what we believe and support, go to our website, timelesstruthtoday.org. Then select Broadcasts on the homepage for an archive of gospel teaching and much more. And while there, would you consider giving a donation to keep this ministry reaching out to thousands of hungry souls? You can be part of this outreach ministry with your gift of any size. Simply go to TimelessTruthToday.org and select Donate on the homepage. Join us next time for Part 10 of Blessing God for Every Spiritual Blessing. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today. Today.